This is Shaping the Future by Regent Street, brought to you directly from the iconic London Street itself and launched to celebrate its 200th anniversary year. Our modern world and everyday experiences are constantly being formed and informed by cultural influences around us. From traditions of old to the incoming tides of technology and emerging trends in fashion, art, food and well-being, this podcast celebrates how Regent Street is leading the way with these cultural forces and their impact on places now and in the future. I'm Elizabeth Day, journalist, podcaster and cultural magpie, and I'll be interviewing leaders making pioneering contributions to the world around us. Hello, I'm your host, Elizabeth Day, and this week we are doing things slightly differently. To get us all in the Christmas spirit and to mark the iconic moment when the Christmas lights are turned on, we are chatting to Paul Dart from James Glancy Designs, the mastermind behind the iconic Spirits installation on Regent Street, which is the most photographed light installation in the world. And yet he claims to have landed in the world of Christmas lights by accident. Before this, Paul trained as a theatre set designer at the Central School of Art and Design in London, which inspired him to use lights as theatre in a public space. Paul, it's such a delight to meet you. And you too. Um, I remember those fantastic spirits soaring above Regent Street. What gave you the inspiration for those particular installations? It was quite a complex story. And as a theatre designer, that's what I do. I create worlds where stories are told. And obviously, most of the time, although I did a lot of large-scale outdoor shows, most of the time it was in theatres and opera houses and things like that. And so I'm always looking for what is the story? What is the visual story I am going to tell to somebody when they walk around the corner of a street and go, oh, my God. My main aim is that moment of joy. I want that sharp intake of breath, that moment when your mother switched on your first Christmas tree, all of those uh, memories. I suppose in a way we're trying to recreate a childhood moment. But also on top of that, um, I was looking at the branding and the sort of backbone of Crown Estate and Regent Street and the reasons why they are still a landmark place to come and, you know, visit. And um, I know uh, St. James's Church quite well. And the altar there has uh, Grinling Gibbons, 18th century. It's a Wren church. And he was a very famous woodcarver. And at the very top, there is a, a pelican with its wings outstretched. And it suddenly occurred to me that it would be very nice to bring back the idea of the spirit of Christmas as a as an entity because it would be aesthetically right there's something flying down the street that it would be about the human person it would be personal and that it hadn't been done for a very long time that idea of that the decorations would not only be this very large-scale use of light, but it would also be something that you could personalise, that you could think of as people up there telling a story. And really, my job as a um, visual designer is to tell visual stories. And sometimes it's, uh, it's 
even though people wouldn't know it, I like the idea of that there is always a historical context. So you mentioned the history there, and I'm fascinated if, about the history of Regent Street. And I know that you're something of an expert in that well, field. Well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> but could you give us a quick overview of, of Regent Street and how it started and... Obviously, it was first built by Nash, who was not only an architect, but also a property developer. It was built to connect Regent Street and... Um, and uh, Haymarket, was that? No, no. There was, um, there was the Prince Regent's um, house on the Mall, on Waterloo Place. And it was then built to um, then link to Regent's Park. Oh. Originally, I think it was called New Street. And the original buildings had a colonnade either side. And this was a revolutionary idea that it made shopping more nicer. You could just keep out of the rain. But it was the first big redevelopment. It was sort of based on a lot of things that obviously then happened in Paris and in Berlin. And it was um, really the first time that a developer thought about shopping as this destination idea. Obviously, the buildings were replaced, you know, after the 1900s into the 1930s, but it still retained this idea of elegance and grandeur, of, you know, a very classical idea of a sort of avenue of buildings that gives you this idea of that you're somewhere very special and that it's got this sort of feeling of that it's Yes, that it's it's somewhere that you would like to go and shop. And when you're doing this incredible installation of art and you're building angels or the 12 days of Christmas, um, how aware are you of combining the history, which you know so much about, and also the needs of modernity and the fact that people are always on their phones and they might want to take a quick pic for Instagram? Well, this is something that I've learned over the last few years with not only with Regent Street but with other clients that now um, the need to create images that are camera phone friendly is absolutely paramount and it is now um, obviously not my generations but uh, you know younger generations way of creating their own storyline but you need to be able to have something that shows up well on a camera phone and that's the reason that the spirits now are the most Instagram decorations around the world is because they have a definable identity and that because of the nature of the identity, hopefully it then becomes part of this sort of group conscious idea of they become almost this symbol for Regent Street. And it's an idea of that you can then send this story around the world, which is now really the revolution that the digital um, you know, cameras and phones has created, you have to both harness people's imagination, but you also have to tell a very clear story. And it's one of the things I say to my employees who are working on all of these projects, and I employ about 60 people all year to do these things, that you must tell the story. You must always go back to basics of what will you see when you come around the corner? They won't know anything about the history. They won't know, but they will have an idea of what they think Christmas is. And dependent on where the context of where that's going to be seen, 
it's very important that they get it immediately. It's like selling a film. You've got to be able to say it in one sentence so that even if they're texting on their phone or they're sitting around a dinner table talking to their friends going, you must go and see whatever. And then they can tell the story very quickly. Whereas if it's too complicated then or it becomes too abstract, then there's nothing for people's imagination to grab hold of. And I'm very aware of that I'm very keen about both looking back to how people told this story in the past. And obviously, I also look forward to the new technology. But I'm very um, keen that the technology should serve the story, not the other way around. And talking about that moment of wonder that you've Mm. described so beautifully, do you personally like Christmas, Paul? I mean, what's your earliest Christmas memory? Well, my earliest is the weirdness of your parents dragging this tree into the front room <laughs> and sticking some lights on it. And I remember it being the first moment when I thought, well, life doesn't have to be boring. It doesn't have to be every day. Suddenly there'll be these moments where your parents, bless their hearts, do this weird thing and they tell you all these stories about men coming down chimneys and that's a whole nother, you know, sort of fantasy for us all. And I personally, by the time I've got to Christmas, I do enjoy it enormously, um, but I use it more as an experiment for decorating the house. And We have some lovely neighbours who I like to play tricks on. And my best was that we have a a sort of staircase going out to the garden at the back and I was taking people down it and I was saying there are sensors in the wall that um, know whether you believe in the magic of Christmas. And there were (laughs) these people tottering down. And I said, and if if you do, something lovely will happen. And there was a little switch hidden behind a drape. And what they didn't know, there was an industrial snow machine in the garage and it was piped up the back of the garden and it sprayed the garden in snow. And I had peers of the realm crying just in absolute, you know, this was just nuts. Paul, I want that on Regent Street next year. It works because of the build-up, you see. That's the thing. Creating magic in the middle of Regent Street is a different different sort of ballgame, I have to say. But I, I like the idea of that we're still children. We still need to be reminded. And however, you know, sophisticated and, you know, hip and groovy you lot are, that you there is still an inner child that at Christmas is allowed to at least show some sort of life. There are no rules. I'm a great breaker of rules. And it doesn't matter how you do it. And this time round, it was using an awful lot of flasher bulbs. And what was and what was interesting was that um, when you're designing these things, um, you rarely get to see it all on because actually the whole technical side of it, these things weigh up to, you know, half a ton. I mean, people always assume that what I do is very fluffy and, you know, sort of, but it's actually quite complicated and there's a lot of technicalities that go through it. And I was um, with the head of all the technical things and we hadn't seen it all on and um, the boys were very, and the women were very sweet. As we were walking along, they all had walkie-talkies and all the people switching them on were all on the rooftops. And as we walked along to check them all, each one went on. And this is three o'clock in the morning. And this is my, this is my little treat or their little treat to me when, you know, you suddenly then see the whole thing. And what I hadn't really 
thought about and hadn't really and couldn't really um, uh, fathom was the fact that all of the flasher bulbs, when they were all on, which were in the nets, actually is the same effect you get um, at the Olympics when everybody's using their flash on their phone, you know, when that first opening ceremony. And it has this hovering... It's a visual metaphor of sort of hovering excitement. And at one point when we were doing the prototypes and I was designing them, I almost changed those lights to half static and half just flashing. And I'm so glad that I stuck to my initial thought that this is the way to do it. But until it's all up, you don't know. So you are walking down Regent Street at 3am and these lights are going on. Yes. What a beautiful image. Did you feel emotional? Did yes. you cry? Yes. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I can't say what emotion I had because most probably you'd have to edit it. But anyway, um, <laughs> it wasn't, it was a feeling of ecstasy. Let's put it that way. I, it, it's very private, those moments. And um, and it's and it's like designing a show. You only really have the first night to yourself. After that, it becomes everybody else's. It's almost like it doesn't then belong to you anymore. You've given it to everybody else, and then they'll make of it what they will. And thank goodness, you know, they all liked it and and got very excited. And people kept on phoning me up and saying you know oh Paul you're you're famous on the internet and I was going lovely darling that's really nice and they went Rihanna liked you and I went did she who's Rihanna (laughs) and as I you know and obviously last year there was um I think there was Maria Carey was doing something in the middle of the street at three in the morning and it's it's because it has a glamour and and I think sometimes uh, people are afraid to be exuberant. They're afraid to be glamorous and slightly camp and slightly sort of, you know, a bit bonkers. And for me, Christmas is slightly camp, slightly bonkers and slightly bizarre. And that's what's good about it. It is the, the Lord of Misrule. You are allowed to wear a silly paper hat and, you know, drink too much sherry and, and do all the things that, we, you know, each family has its own traditions. And I think the decoration should be as well, although they should also be serious. I mean, these are beautifully sculpted things. And I was, you know, really lucky to find some really good both, um, you know, those were modelled digitally before they were built. And then once they built a, a, you know, prototype and then we refined them. You know, they are pieces of sculpture. They were a nod to Gormley. They were a nod to all sorts of people. And in a way, I'm. I look at those, and it's like the first decorations that went up because they obviously it was after the war, and you know we were still had rationing. You know, life wasn't exactly brilliant after the war for England for a long time, and the first design was very abstract. It was just snowflakes, and it was lit with X, you know, searchlights from the side of the street, which you could do now and would be as relevant. There's something so beautiful as you're talking there about Christmas being a dark time of year and spring being around the corner and the darkness of war and the light around the corner and how symbolic the Regent Street lights are for all of those reasons. Exactly. And I think it's that reverberation of both being terribly serious about this. And I I am, you know, I can give you my six hour dissertation on the meaning and history of Christmas and oh, it goes on. That's another podcast series. Exactly. It goes on and on and on. (laughs) 
Um, but there's also the very silly dressing up as Santa and believing this mad story side of Christmas. And that's what gives it its, for me, interest. I've been doing this for 30 years now. And I have to say, it's much like theatre. You know, there isn't a material, a fabric or a storyline I haven't used so far. But it still has resonance. It's still like I'm, I am like the taxman, the undertaker. And, you know, I am the third Christmas. You have to do it. I would like to most probably make Christmas feel even more amazing. And yes, it would be lovely to have mass snow machines down Regent Street. Technically, I think we might have a bit of a problem, but there would be another way of telling that story. And it's about feeling special. And also reflecting the fact that Regent Street has completely changed itself. It's reinvented itself yet again, you know, and it's been doing it for the last 200 years. And for the better, I enjoy walking down there. And I'm a very difficult shopper. And I would want it to go even further. I'd want to see more and more unusual, different shops that take me to other places. That enable you to tell new stories as the shopper, but also you, Paul, as the designer, you're able to tell new stories about Regent Street as well. It's a beautiful symbiosis yes, in a way. Yes, exactly. But can I ask you a bit about the, the technical side? Oh, hello, right. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm a total technological incompetent, so I'd love you to talk me through, in layman's terms, right. what it takes to make something so so stunning, appear so effortless, because I imagine there's months and months of work involved in that. So what's the starting process and, and what do you have to do to get those angels up there? Right. The The process for this particular project started um, most probably two years before they went up. Um, and the previous scheme had some technical problems and it wasn't telling, the main one was that it wasn't telling a very clear story. It was technologically very, very complicated, but it you didn't know that. It was just a lot of lights going on and off. Nobody knows it could do all of the things that they said it could do. And the whole angel thing had already occurred to me. So then the whole idea of then extending the whole idea to um, Regent Street and St. James came up. And the basically there were three different designs. There was a very modernist design, a slightly more Baroque uh, design, and then Regent Street turned into the spirits of Christmas. And so once that had been decided upon, um, that was most probably a year before they went up. And then we started making prototypes. Then it has to go to all of the engineers. And so these things weigh up to about half a ton once you've got all of the nets and all the lights and everything. And also there are, and I cannot now tell you how many lights there are, but there's quite a few. And finding a, a, a supplier for those was quite tight, let's put it that way, because there's such a huge amount. And we had to scour Europe to find enough of the lights. Then the overall design then has to go to the engineers that work out the wind loadings, the snow loadings, the pull-out loadings for all the cables. Then it had to go to the rigging company who then did a experimental rig up in their factory up in Northampton. Then we said, well, that's okay. We then had to find the nets, have then the lights put into the nets. And it sort of, people don't really realise 
A, how many of them there are. B, how much, you know, Regent Street is a very long street and a very wide one. And then it all goes up, which means that the most of the West End has to be closed down because um, we have to have complete control over um, the street. Again, there's a whole department that deals with that and works with, you know, Transport for London and all of those people. And then you have to have people that can close the street. It can only be done at certain times because they have to sort of, you know, reroute all the buses and everything. Do you tend to do it overnight? Yes. No, it's always at night. Um, And so um, I then go from working during the day to working at night. So then I turn into this rather strange bag lady that turns up at sort of two and three in the morning. And I'm there just going up a bit, down a bit. Can we move that over a bit? This looks terrible. Why are you so close to this? What's going on? And that goes on for nearly two and a half weeks. And in a way, it's my moment when I get to see it going up and just fine tuning stuff. And then every so often they'll plug it in and you'll see one on its own and you then have to use your imagination to um, imagine the rest of them. And really only until um, the night before the switch on do you get to see the whole thing together. And you say there you plug it in. I mean, do you literally plug it in? Where do you plug it in? Is there a giant socket no, on Piccadilly if, Circus? No, if only. Well, it's such a long street um, that there are multiple sockets on rooftops. There's all sorts of places. So it, on a switch on, we have a team, I think it's about 15 people who are all on walkie-talkies. And so, you know, when whoever is presses that button. I mean, you know, it's not attached to anything. It's just purely there's somebody with a walkie-talkie stood there looking at them, and they go three, two, one, and go, and then they everybody because it's all you know those buildings aren't joined together, so it's like doing very large scale sort of yes, it's um, quite a do I have to say. And what happens? So for me, when I put fairy lights on a Christmas tree, mm. and one of the fairy light bulbs breaks, mm. and the whole thing then is messed up. So does that happen? It, uh, no, it doesn't happen in that way because the lights we use aren't really nowadays you're thinking of when you used to have screw in little um, that's sort of quite a while ago back in the 19th century oh Paul. darling when I was a young thing you know when there was just a light bulb we only had candles exactly exactly well quite rightly too um no led bulbs nowadays um they don't really do that anymore that's one of the reasons for using them. Um, we do have problems and you will lose a whole section. And because, you know, there's something like 20,000 bulbs in, in one net, you'll have one tiny element of it go out and that we can then just unplug that section and then replace it. So when the lights finally go on mm. and you're looking at this work of splendour down mm. Regent Street, do you feel enormously exhausted? <laughs> Do I feel... Um, no. Most of the time I stand there and go, yep, that's what I saw in my imagination. My job, most of all, is to imagine things and get it there. But my other part of my brain is going, oh, now what can I do to add to them to make them more gorgeous? What would I do if I was going to change this? So I tend to want to get on to the next thing and improve and what would I do with this if I was to do something with it? I'm more interested in the next thing because I sort of go, well, this was an idea I had almost two years ago and it does its job and it's lovely and I'm I'm more than happy with it. But then I'm always wanting to go, well, I wonder they'd look like if they were gold. I wonder if I put gold sequins through anything. I wonder what that would look like because I'm always looking for the next development. 
talking of next developments, can I ask you just a massive question, which is really what you perceive the role of art to be in public spaces in the future and and how much you think technology is going to be part of that? Obviously, technology will be a large part of it because of the nature of the world that we now live in and the expectations that people have got very used to the miracle of the mobile phone and expect that to be part of life. Unfortunately, I'm also of the opinion that art in public spaces is a very difficult one. And I would much rather not necessarily call it art, but I would want to see public spaces and buildings have changeability and adaptability built into them. So that when I come to decorate a street, we don't have to put in all this infrastructure into it because architects don't think in those terms. And we have become more and more urban in the way that we live. And we're getting further and further away from the seasons, from feeling things that change every day because we just don't have that effect in our lives anymore. And that's why now we all go charging off into the woods to go and get back to nature and all of this business. But I I would like art to be used less as a sort of educational sort of, it's terribly good for you, take your medicine now, here's your art, you know, something on a plinth somewhere, that you would much rather walk into a urban space and there would be something there which would still make you think and still make you reflect on things and but would also still have would also be fun mm. and would also change more often i think as a theater designer i'm i'm i want things to go i want things to, to be built and then disappear and change and come back again and reinvent themselves and and memorialize more things during the year and i feel the same about retail i think that it needs to be much more um, proactive in the way that it creates the worlds that it's trying to sell in. And I like the idea of that public spaces should almost be about, in a way, educating us to just not always look down, but look up as well. And again, that's another reason for the lights. People, one of the rare times they would ever look up and look at the buildings. I love that idea of your installations making people more aware of their environment because they move in the breeze and you're aware of the changing of seasons. I think that's so powerful. What impact do you think that will have on a future consumer or a future shopper? I would hope that they still go shopping. (laughs) I think that's the main thing. I would like it that there are more and more reasons to come into a city and enjoy it, that there is something visually stimulating. And we're very lucky. We live in a beautiful city that has a wonderful history. And I would want to enhance that. I I don't want to turn it into a sort of Disney sort of London but I think that both the Christmas decorations the um, the light festivals that have happened in town some of the more interesting sort of 
essentially were started as demonstrations and then became sort of moments when, you know, you would turn the streets into pedestrian friendly and and have these summer festivals and other things that happen. It is a cosmopolitan place. And I think that the way we use the streets should reflect that. Because obviously, you know, the Crown Estate has had a long stewardship of this street. They are also both looking back and also having to steward the future of this street. You mentioned at the beginning that John Nash designed Regent Street. What do you think he would have made of your lights? (laughs) What would he have made? I think he would have been absolutely stunned, um, considering they only had candlelight, uh, that he hopefully would have applauded the fact that we've done something which he would understand. It is a timeless icon. And it's something that reverberates down from medieval times. So I would most probably hope that, notwithstanding all of the technology of the actual lighting, that it would be a an image that he and Grinlingers would understand. They would look at it and go, I know what I'm looking at. And I think that he was not only an architect, but obviously a, a developer, a property developer, as Thomas Cubitt and all those people. And he was the start of making our city beautiful. I started this interview by saying that you got into this line of work by accident. Yes. How accidental was it? It was very strange. Um, I was running around Europe doing huge operas and I was at the national designing shows for Ian McKellen and Mark Rylance and all sorts of things. And I'd worked with one director for 15, 20 years. And my partner and I started a shop when we met 31 years ago. And uh, it was sort of an unofficial gay men's gift shop. And uh, it was called Obsessions. And because we started with um, very little money... We couldn't afford a shop fit. So I would come in every month and completely change what it looked like with whatever happened to be left over from a show or something. And our um, marketing guy was James Glancy. And his dad knew uh, the people that ran St. Christopher's Place. And it was at that moment being run by Nikki Kinnage, who then went on to start Space NK. And she leant across the table and went, I want something girly. I want it non-traditional. And can you sort the lighting out down in that alleyway? Because it's really dangerous. So we put our credit cards together and we'd just come back from doing a huge performance piece for Dublin when they were cultural city of, of Europe. And we had all these big gold wings. And weirdly enough, we did angels. Um, but they were very abstracted ones. And it sort of, sort of first five years, it wasn't serious. We just had a few staff. We then took on a building to store stuff. And then it started to snowball because people were looking for something different. They wanted to look at diff- a Christmas in a different way. And um, and so we provided that. We still are the naughty boys of our, our particular sector. And I'm always one to break a rule and then mend it again quickly. And it's uh, turned into this monster. You know, we have 60 full-time staff and then God knows how many others um, contract over the putting stuff up and all that business. And it's a weird thing to... I don't do any more theatre. I don't do anything like that. It was very interesting to take my 
way of thinking, which was obviously a very arts-based, it's not for the money type of thinking, um, and then place that in a very commercial situation. And I think some people, I think mainly they found it very refreshing because I'm quite used to sitting there going, now, why are we doing it like this, chaps? I don't understand. Let's have a look. Let's just walk back away from this before just making all these assumptions. And most people in you know a commercial world aren't don't think like that, especially not about Christmas, because um, we have a certain rule. If a client says we want some Christmas decorations, we want it traditional with a twist, we sack them <laughs> because. I just sit there and go, well, which tradition do you want to talk about, Pat? You know, we're going to have to go. We've got, there's a lot to go through. And it's interesting, but I'm still the outsider. It feels like there are stories that we tell about the story itself. Yes. Your art spans the generations. It spans technologies. And Regent Street is very grateful for it. Thank you so much for talking to me, Paul. You're welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in to Shaping the Future by Regent Street. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please do take a minute to rate, review and subscribe. It really does help other people to find the show. Follow more Regent Street happenings at Regent Street W1 on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Otherwise, head over to regentstreetonline.com for more detailed information. This has been Shaping the Future by Regent Street with me, your host, Elizabeth Day. (laughs) 